Hello and welcome to episode number 47 of the Know Your Physio podcast. I'm your host, Andres Prichel, helping you discover your science to optimize your life, health, and performance. And today's guest is Greg Bennett. He's one of the most accomplished athletes of all time and certainly one of the most accomplished athletes alive today and definitely the most accomplished athlete that I've ever had on my podcast. Greg is a former Olympic triathlete. He's now a motivational speaker, corporate trainer, entrepreneur, and we take you through the journey of his life, what it took to become the best at what he did as a as a triathlete, what the mindset was like, what it taught him about his career post-triathlon. We go deep on the science of visualization, how you can train without training, what it feels like to set yourself apart as an athlete in terms of talent, hard work, and opportunity. We talked about resilience, early life experience, and how it can shape the characteristic of resilience. I want to leave the rest for the show. This is really just such an inspiring show that really puts you in the mind of a professional athlete and someone that is simply the best at what they do. So even if you're not a fan of triathlon, believe me, you're going to take a lot from this episode in terms of grit, resilience, and being the best at whatever it is that you do. We go deep on what it takes. So thanks to Greg for joining us. I found out through the podcast, as you'll soon hear, I found out that he actually lives here in South Florida. And so we'll be doing another episode in the near future in person. So let us know if there's any questions that you have, any topics that you want to make sure we cover. It would be our pleasure to discuss them. So anyway, hope you guys enjoy and we'll see you on the other side. Ladies and gentlemen, the folks at Bioptimizers have done it again. They've just released their new and improved formula for Magnesium Breakthrough, the most powerful magnesium supplement on the market today. This product was already amazing, but Bioptimizers has continued to research and improve it. And this new fourth generation formula means Magnesium Breakthrough is now even more potent and effective for reducing stress, improving sleep, and boosting energy levels. And if you've already taken Magnesium Breakthrough, You'll want to try the new formula as soon as you can because it now includes cofactors like B6 and manganese that help with the absorption of magnesium. And if you've never tried Magnesium Breakthrough before, now is the perfect time to try it. And here's why. For the deepest healing of many health problems, Dr. Mark Circus says there is going to be only one answer, and that answer is magnesium. And why does he say that? Well, there's two very important reasons. First, magnesium is involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions. And second, about 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium. This is a much bigger problem than most people think because when you don't get enough magnesium, you suffer from poor sleep, low energy, and even higher stress levels. And in every bottle of magnesium breakthrough, you'll get seven unique forms of organic full spectrum magnesium, which can dramatically improve your health. It can help you sleep longer and deeper, help you reduce stress levels and feel more calm. It'll give you abundant all-day energy to win at life. And because it supports mental awareness, Magnesium Breakthrough can help you to finally feel like yourself again. Simply taking two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels. And how much more rested you feel when you wake up. You'll feel refreshed like new. And for an exclusive offer for my listeners, you can go to magbreakthrough.com slash undress and use code ONDRESS, A-N-D-R-E-S, during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Oh, 
And one last thing, if you want your loved ones to be healthier, consider giving them the gift of Magnesium Breakthrough for Mother's Day, Father's Day, or even a spring birthday. Again, that special link is magbreakthrough.com slash undress. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash undress. One more time, magbreakthrough.com slash undress, A-N-D-R-E-S. Use code undress during checkout, save 10% and get free shipping. That's all for now, folks. Have an amazing rest of your day. Hope you enjoy some good sleep and some nice, calm energy with your magnesium. Greg, here we are. Welcome to the Know Your Physio podcast. It's an honor to have you here with us. I really want to dig into all things, you know, athletic mindset, endurance, podcasting, so many different topics that I want to pick apart. And this is typically not the case with my guests. I typically have a bit of an introduction prepared, but you have such a rich history as a motivational speaker, as an athlete. You know, you've done so much. I figured the best way to do this and to really do it justice is if you could sort of take us through some of the incredible competitive lifestyle that you've maintained and the kind of things that you've accomplished as a triathlete. So <laughs> not my typical introduction, but welcome to the show. Honored to have you here with us. And yeah, if you could take us through your pedigree. I'm very honored to be here. I'm very honored to be here, you know, and I guess I can give a quick rundown of my past life and my life currently. So yeah, I'm originally Australian, as you can probably tell by my accent. Now living in South Florida, and as we just said pre-show, we're only an hour and a half apart, and we're like, ah, we should have done this in person. But that's for a future date, we'll do a follow-up. But I found the sport of triathlon when I was about 14, 15 in the mid-80s. By the late 80s, I had sort of was racing professionally. I still went to university and did a couple of degrees, but I during that study, I was still racing professionally. And then I continued racing professionally for 27 years and retired when I was 44. A couple of Olympic Games and a few world titles later, the body had kind of said, that's enough. And I was very, I feel incredibly grateful for being able to follow my passion and get everything out of myself, squeeze every little bit I could out of myself physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, the whole lot in that 27-year period. And so when I retired in 2016, kind of took a bit of a hiatus, to be honest, for about six months, almost like a, a, a mini retirement, you know, a half-life detox. Yeah. And it was, you know, I did some coaching then for a year or so and realized coaching, as much as I kind of enjoyed it, I just didn't get the true, you know, being an athlete, there's something about that that's just raw and real and exciting. And coaching wasn't doing it for me. I actually started my podcast in 2019 and just like you, just wanted to learn from the best and get the great thought leaders of the world on my platform and have conversations with them. And for the most part, it's somewhat of a triathlon podcast because that was the low-hanging fruit. I could reach out to great triathletes and coaches. But I've really enjoyed the conversations with entertainers and entrepreneurs and doctors and, and alike, a bit like your show, just trying to learn from the best. And we were talking pre-show about how much we've both been able to grow and learn just by having this weekly conversation with exceptional people. It really is a fascinating place to learn and grow. And since that podcast, you know, this last sort of six to 12 months, I've taken a role with a company called Any Question, which is an app that basically was designed because someone was listening to my podcast and thought, well, why can't I ask the world's great thought leaders questions? And so that guy's name is Ed Baker, who was the head of growth at Facebook and then became the head of growth, a little 
ride-sharing app called Uber and built that to what it was. And then he's now my business partner in building this new app called Any Questions. So it's amazing how when you put yourself out there, there's a vulnerability to doing a podcast and, you know, it's a little nerve-wracking. I don't know about you, but you get a little bit nervous and you don't know, you know, where you're going. But I think that it's amazing how the world can offer up certain things if you just put yourself out there and, and you keep moving. So that's my <laughs> life in a nutshell. We can probably get into a bit more detail on different phases of that journey, but you know, I just want to give you a bit of a recap. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this is not typical for me. I typically don't pull up like a, you know, my guests have, you know, X degree here, X degree there. Maybe they want this, they want that, but you have over 500 wins. 500 race starts. No, 100 wins and 500 races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but right. Over 100 yeah. wins. Like, I mean, I'm looking at this, like, there's a Wikipedia here. This is unbelievable. I mean, it's, and then your wife, you guys are the world's fittest couple. <laughs> Maybe another lifetime ago, but yeah. No, it's unbelievable. And it's so cool to hear that the podcasting has been such an immense outlet for growth considering how much you've grown just being an athlete. One question that I have for you is you mentioned earlier, you kind of recognized that you had enough. And how did you recognize that? Was it your body telling you that you had enough? Was it the people around you telling you, you had enough? Was it an age thing? You know, How did you know when enough was enough? That's a really good question. And it's probably a bit of all of those things, to be honest. I think, look, you know, I was, I think I won my last big race in uh, 2013, I think 2014, and I was 41, 42. And the body was still going pretty well. But I did notice the next couple of years after that, I just, my run speed just started tapping out a little bit. And it was taking me a lot more to get out and do the consistent work. To the point, I had a laugh once with a friend of mine, Hunter Kemper, who's one of America's greatest triathletes. Uh, I think he's got like seven or 10 US national titles, but a really good guy. And we we're both sitting on the pre-race press conference and he said, Greg, you know, what's your morning routine to get out the door to train? And I'm like, well, I often sit in an Epsom salt bath or a hot bath and then I do some rollers and then I do some light PNF stretching with my wife, Laura. And then I'll go and do a three to 5K warm-up jog. And then kind of do a little bit more loosening up before I do whatever my main workout's going to be. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was such a process just to get the body warmed up and moving again before I could do anything of quality type work. And he just laughed, you know, and it was, it was that kind of, I was becoming the old man of the sport to some degree. And it was taking a lot more in terms of body maintenance to keep it going. And the one thing I always loved was I loved what they would call the hard work, the going all out in the swimming, the biking and running and the speed and the endurance and the almost the what you'd call the suffering side. Maybe I'm a bit sadistic, but... Masochist. You're a masochist. Yeah, but I, I love that. And what I didn't love was doing all the little things. So doing all the rollers and doing the stretching and doing the baths and doing the ice bath recovery. And, and that stuff started to weigh up. And I always said passion's the first thing to go. And when your passion goes, everything goes, right? Your body starts falling apart because you stop doing the little things right. You don't perform as well because suddenly traveling to races isn't as much fun or whatever it was. And so it was kind of a snowballing effect that the passion to do the little things wasn't there. And the results then started to suffer in my second to last year. And then I did one more year where I only raced maybe four to five times and there was no wins in fact, I had some big leads off the bike and even got run down and, and it was just kind of like, hang on, the run's meant to be my strength and, and it was like, okay, it's time to step aside. I've, and like Laura said, my wife, and I'll probably refer to her throughout this conversation because she really has been my rock. She's like, you know, Greg, you've had your turn. It's time to let somebody else have it. And when you get that mindset, you've had your turn, you get to, even my brother said it once, he said, you know, you work so hard for so long. It's like you get to rent being the best in the world just for a moment in time. 
And I said, that's exactly it. You never own it. It's like you get to rent it for a split moment and then there's somebody better, faster comes along or your body breaks down, whatever it is. And yeah, so that was it for me. And yeah, 2016 when I was 44, it was like, okay. I got to retire on my own terms, but that passion had just started to wane and, and it was time. Wow. And you know, you brought up uh, something that really struck me when you said the passion goes first. And I'm wondering if this concept was something that you discovered through triathlon or if you had been familiar with this previous to triathlon or if it's someone else, like how did you uncover that? How did you know that the concept of passion going first was like the red flag? For me, it was because I'm a very passionate type person and my drive to success and the drive to get more out of life and keep pursuing always, I knew it came from this deep down desire to do something special. I kind of, I look at life that we get this short amount of time on this planet, that we all have an end and we don't know when that end's going to be, which makes life kind of exciting. <laughs> but it's kind of, I want to squeeze as much out of life as I can. And when you have that kind of mindset and you wake up with that every single day, that this could be my last day, let's give it a good crack. And then I've been able to channel that kind of mindset into the area of swim, bike, run, triathlon, that I love the people, I love the pushing myself, I love the racing, I love everything about it. So I was truly passionate about everything involved in it, that I knew because I was that kind of person that when the passion starts to wane, and I knew there'd be a point, I kept waiting. I mean, I was getting pretty old and I was still loving it. And I thought it, and it did. It finally, I was actually almost relieved when my passion started to wane. And it was almost like I've ticked every box that I could have hoped to have done. Well, not every, that's not true. There's things on my resume I'd love to have added, but it was definitely, if you'd asked 17 year old Greg, would you want this career? I would have said 100% yes. It was, you know, I had some regrets, but not massive. And so, yeah, the passion, you know, like I said, it, it finally went. I knew, I just knew that I was that kind of person that when that stopped, I was in trouble. And do you find that the people that you surround yourself with in triathlon, that they did it for a similar reason or it was a similar passion? Did you notice a similar sort of personality? No, I think everybody's very different. Like we're all individuals. I think some people, you know, a lot of people get thrust into things because they have tremendous talent and ability and they find themselves being very successful for whatever success means to them. But they're fairly successful and they're actually not passionate about what they're doing, but they feel like they have to do it. I mean, Andre Agassi is a great example of that, you know, the tennis player of the 80s and 90s. I mean, the guy was phenomenal, but hated tennis, but he was good at it. And that's what he'd spend his life doing. And so he had this real struggle with doing something. So, I think we're all very different in the way we approach it. You know, even my wife, who, you know, became one of the, the greatest female triathletes in the world, and she was very different to me. She's very analytical and very, very factual. She really manages her emotions very well. And whereas I'm a bit more over the place, and I feel like, you know, depending on your emotional character, it almost determines how passionate you can be about things and how it affects you. It took me a lot to manage my ego, manage my expectations, all of these things that can be generated when you're too passionate. It took me a lot to try and find that, let's not go too high, let's not go too low. It took me a long time. So I have a lot of questions now pertaining to the ego and the passion because it brings up things for me. But before I get there, I want to ask you, you know, I mean, I'll put it this way. Maybe I've had the luck of the draw as far as the triathletes that I've met are all very like vibrant people like they're alive you know they really are alive and it's sort of like well i guess they have to have this kind of life to them if they're going to be running for hours on end and really punishing their bodies this way but it's like you know i'm wondering if that's been the case with you and the people that you've seen in the in the traffic community like when they're on their off time 
are they exhausted or are they these vibrant, vibrant people considering the nature of the work they're doing? I love this because I think probably my number one thing that I love most about the sport of triathlon are the people. Now, whether they're amateur or age group, we call them, or professionals, you'll find that everybody in it is just trying to get more out of life. At the end of the day, to swim, bike, and run to exhaustion is kind of nuts, right? I mean, it really is kind of nuts, but it's more, it's a way that you're able to peer into yourself and go beyond where you've been before. And people that want to go beyond where they've been before and get out of their comfort zone and test themselves and go to a strange place, they're people that, like I said, the start of this sentence is basically they're just trying to get more out of life. Like it's a, I've got life, I'm enjoying it, but there's got to be more. And I love that peering over the edge. And sometimes we step too far and we fall off the edge. But it's, I think, when you have that kind of community and they all come together, it's a very bonding experience. You know, there's the nerves pre-race, you know, and it's like, it's incredibly nerve-wracking when you're, an example would be the Escape from Alcatraz triathlon where they send 2,000 people out in a ferry and you're jumping off the side of the ferry right next to Alcatraz and you're swimming ashore the two kilometers or one and a quarter miles. But the energy on that boat, it's absolutely extraordinary. Towards my end of the career, I didn't get terribly, I wasn't super aroused state, but when you're on a boat with 2,000 amateurs and everybody's, you know, it's a really special moment. And then the flip side of that is when you finish the race, good, bad, or ugly, you finish the race, the stories that come through and the, almost a celebration that you've all been into battle and back together, you know, and you survived and you got through it. And that's very, very special with this kind of endurance community because it's not just triathlon, you know, running and cycling, they all kind of have it. And I think that's what I thoroughly enjoyed very, very much. And let me ask you something. For the people that are tuning in that have no idea what a triathlete or a triathlon even is, can you break down the distances? Uh, I think it's important (laughs) towards the beginning of the podcast just to paint the picture for folks who are not familiar. Yeah. So really, a triathlon, firstly, in its simplest form is swim, bike, run in that order. And you do them in one race and you transition between each of them as fast as you can. They vary in distance anywhere from very, very short, what we would call super sprints, where you might find even at your local YMCA or anywhere indoor races and things where it might be a 200 meter or a couple of hundred yard swim onto a sort of five mile bike or, you know, whatever, eight kilometer bike. And then you could do a a little two mile run or one mile run, whatever off it. So anything like that can be called a triathlon. It doesn't have to be a set distance for it to be called a triathlon. Starting there, then you work up and you might get to something like the Olympic distance is what they call it, which is the, the distance that's in the Olympic Games. And that's a 1,500-meter swim, 40-kilometer bike, 10-kilometer run, or just shy of a one-mile swim, 24-something point whatever miles on the bike, and then a 6.2-mile run. And then you'll go up in distances from there. There's a half Ironman and a full Ironman, which is a full Ironman in metric is 3.8-kilometer swim a 180-kilometer bike, and then a 42.2-kilometer marathon run. So a half Ironman is also well, exactly half those distances. So they range basically from anywhere from a 20-minute event all the way up to those sort of eight, nine hours for the professionals. And, you know, for the amateurs that are doing Ironman, they sometimes go up to 17 hours. So really a full-day event for most people. And so and you competed in all of these distances, or most of them, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I competed in all of them. Ironman was not my forte. That was not the thing that I was known for. I did a couple right at the end of my career just to tick some boxes. But You won six of those? 
No, I won the 70, the half Ironmans I did again. Basically, what I did was focus on the Olympic distance in the World Series and the Olympics for about 10 to 15 years. Then I transitioned to the US and there's two different types of Olympic distance. One's called drafting and one's called non-drafting. What I mean by that is in one style, you can slipstream on the bike and the other, they force you to be 10 to 20 meters apart and not be able to slipstream and save energy on the bike. So the first part of my career was probably focused on the drafting style, the slipstreaming style, which is what's used in the World Triathlon Series. And the second part of my career, I really focused on the non-drafting or the individual format, which there was a big professional series in the US that uh, that's why I transitioned my career over to the US with pretty big prize money that I really wanted to do well at. And then towards the end of my career, once I was about 40, I switched over and started doing some longer ones, the half Ironmans. I think I did about... So the half Ironman is the 70.3. That's where I made the mistake. That's right. 70.3. Yeah. So that's... What is that? 1.9 kilometer swim, 90 kilometer bike and a half marathon, 21 kilometer run. Generally just under four hours, somewhere between sort of three hours, 45 and four hours for the win. And I did maybe 15 of those. I think I I actually had about a 50% winning rate, but I didn't actually enjoy them. I often crossed the line and just went, yeah... Glad that's over. So, uh, talking about passion, it wasn't, it didn't do a lot for me. Don't get me wrong, I was grateful for the win and if the body showed up, but it didn't have that oomph that I enjoyed in the shorter racing, which was a lot more head to head, you know, a bit more of a tussle. You know, if you won by 30 seconds in a short race, that was a long way. Whereas the 70.3s, you could win by a couple of minutes. And it's, it was more about you and less about racing others. And I kind of enjoyed the racing others. And let me ask you something. As far as, you know, if you're racing for hours on end, what is going through your mind? Are you thinking about your time? Are you thinking about your body? Are you thinking about what you have to do the next day? What were some typical themes? And were there any lessons that you learned during the races that you otherwise didn't really expect? Well, I think first and foremost, you every single race you are learning, whether you're winning or losing. In fact, you probably learned a lot more from the races that you lost in, especially if you felt you were prepared and you were, really thought you were going to get to have a good race and you didn't. There was a lot of learning there. But the mindset, you know, throughout every single race would be different. I mean, it's a different mindset if you're chasing compared to leading a race and the anxiety that comes with leading is actually quite stressful. And so you're trying to, in those instances, especially when it comes to anxiety of leading a race, you're trying to just break it down and think very rationally and factually about, okay, get to the next aid station, you know, grab some water, you know, what's the time gap? Okay, I've got got a 30-second lead with three kilometers to go, you know, that means every Every kilometer, I can afford 10 seconds that they'd have to make up. But if I can hold it at 30 seconds gap for another kilometer, well, then they've got to make up 30 seconds in two kilometers, and that's going to be really difficult for them. And then, you know, I was very mathematical, especially under duress. I, I found math to be a great place to just take yourself out of emotional thinking. It became very factual. And even things like just counting. You know, I would count on the bike a lot, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, two, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And I do eight sets of eight, just really crunching on those pedals with everything, you know, but focus on the counting. Running was much the same, you know, especially if I was running up a steep hill or something and it felt slow, you're just getting to count, 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 count. And that for me was a nice way to just take yourself away from the pain or worrying about others on the race course. And that were nice little tricks and tools that I always, you know, tapped into. But I also, and we can go into this a bit later if you like, but I practiced loads of visualizing. 
I was very natural at it, always visualizing, or you could call it daydreaming to some degree, but I became quite good at grabbing that daydreaming and becoming very analytical with it and planning my visual. Just during the race or before a race? No, before. Usually in my training, either physical visualizing, so in my training workouts or static where I'd be lying in bed or on a massage table, I would go through every kind of circumstance and situation I could possibly think of. And, you know, I'm such a big believer in you know, what you think has a direct impact on your physiology that I spent a lot of time doing that. I'd like to say I was doing that well before it almost became trendy. Did you discover it yourself or did someone teach you? Yeah, yeah. I found it very empowering. In fact, I was almost too good at visualizing that, you know, Laura used to say it wouldn't let me visualize in sort of December, January, February because I'd be going too hard in my training, you know, because I could I could hear the commentators in my head. I could hear the athletes breathing on my shoulders. I could, And I'd go too hard too soon in training. And, you know, with it being a long year, Laura used to say, you're not allowed to start visualizing until March 15 or whatever. And, and it was true. It was like I found it so empowering that it often got in the way of just consistent good training without trying to have great workouts early on in the year. That's interesting. It's like a lot of people, like their significant other will give them shit about what they do or what they say. And it's like, <laughs> you're getting shit about what you think or what you might be thinking or imagining. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, she has to deal with me when I'm broken or injured because I've gone out too hard for a year. So she's just protecting herself from later on. Oh my goodness. Only between triathletes. That's amazing. So one thing I wanted to ask is as far as, you know, your unique advantage, right? Because you're objectively I mean, legendary in this world and, and forever will be. And it's like, was your unique advantage these tools, tips, and tricks that you had that you had discovered or was it a genetic advantage or your training? Like, what did you feel really set you apart? Oh, that's a big question to unwrap. Well, first and foremost, I probably had some talent. I'm not going to shy away from that. I'm not one of these people to sit here and say I didn't have a little bit of talent. Obviously, I think I had a reasonable VO2 max and I could sit at a... What was your VO2 max out of curiosity? I think it was like 78. I don't think I ever got over 80, but I only got tested when I was really little. Well, really little, 21, 22, whatever. And I remember doing a test actually. They were testing a lot of Aussies and this is before Sydney got the Olympics even, but I think they wanted to get Australian athletes into the right sort of sports. And, and they said, Greg, we're going to send you down to Adelaide to go to the institute down there cycling. You should be on the track doing the 4,000 pursuit cycling and you know because you know we think we can train you up and blah 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 and i said well i don't want to be a cycler i want to be a triathlete and so it was funny because years later the athletes that came out of that institute program included like robbie McEwen, Stuart o'grady brad mcgee some of the biggest names in cycling you could ever imagine like they took on the world but and we can talk about this later but the kind of training they were doing you know for a 4k pursuit race on the track they were riding a thousand kilometers a week just crazy kind of work and i did the same kind of crazy work in triathlon but you know so for me yes there was some natural talent i grew up in a sports mad family my older brother played professional rugby for a number of years post high school and you know he's the real athlete he could turn on a dime could run had fearless, absolutely fearless. I didn't get that at all. I'm not fearless like him, but he would tackle a monster guy on the wing, just running him down. And so I came from a family where, firstly, we were sports mad. Secondly, my mum and dad really encouraged us to go see the world and say yes to every opportunity out there. We were privileged in the sense that I could go out and explore the world and challenge myself and always know I could come home and there'd be a bed for me. And for me, that's the ultimate privilege to have, you know, parents that love you and there's a bed if you fail <laughs> big time and then allow you to reboot. And I was given that opportunity and, you know, even 
when I did have my first professional, full-time professional year after university, you know, I actually had some injuries and the money wasn't rolling and it was tough and it was nice to be able to come home and, you know, I was waiting tables and everything and I'd pay mum and dad rent that kind of way, but it was still way cheaper than living on my own. And, you know, I was 23 at the time and they were still letting me, you know, crash at their house. And that for me, I don't take for granted. I felt very privileged for that. And then I, I think the next phase is I joined a coach by the name of Brett Sutton and Brett had this old school kind of philosophy of training that was very, very big work broken, a lot of interval work broken up. And I embraced that kind of work. I actually loved it. And I would see other athletes in the training squad that were in, you know, complaining or moaning. And I, I would get tired, but I kind of loved the thrill of trying to see what I could do every single day. And I don't know, maybe it was ego or whatever else. I never wanted to shy away from that. I kind of wanted to always be put on a brave face and just dive into it. And, and I think I just, because I embraced that really, really hard work, I learned to work very, very hard. Now, that was great. But it also made me very, very tired. And during that period, I don't think I probably got the performances that I should have because I left a lot of it in training. So I had to learn a lot from that and grow from going, this sport is far more than just hard work. Hard work is a big ingredient. You've got to love it. So I've got the talent, the hard work. And then the final part, and to quote Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, there's the opportunity. So talent, work, and opportunity. And for me, there was plenty of opportunity throughout the different stages of my career. And I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time many, many times throughout my career. And that I also, I've got to acknowledge as being a huge part of my success. But even if I really wanted to break it down even further, I'd have to say meeting Laura, my wife in 2000. And like I said earlier at the top of the show, you know, I was a very passionate guy and very emotional and blah, blah, blah. And to have her be my, my even keel, somebody that has sent to me and, um, that was when, if you look at my performances, there was a real acceleration to going to world number one and, you know, and then hitting all the big professional wins that I did in the US it was after meeting Laura. And I think, you know, aligning those with all the other things I've mentioned, I think that was why I had some success. So it was, yeah, it was a matter of alignment. And I'm a big fan of that book. I think the biggest theme is in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, is just how circumstances can really develop some of these people in ways where they become outliers. It's not like they put, just put in the, the 10,000 hours. It's more like they have circumstances that just kind of lined up. And it seems to like this was the case for you in a lot of ways. You know, you had that safety net at home, you had the right trainers, you had the right partner, and you really enjoyed that hard work. And something that you were describing was, you know, there was something about that hard work that perhaps wasn't actually benefiting your training, but you still loved it because it kind of gave you this resilience. And on the topic of resilience, why do you think you were in favor of that. Why do you think other people shied away from it? Is there something particularly in childhood? Is there something, a lesson that your parents taught you? Like, what is that? Yeah, a great question. And it was actually something I was just talking to a friend of mine who's an ex-professional hockey player. He played for, you know, two Stanley Cup winner, Brad Richards, amazing hockey player. And we were chatting about it the other night. And for me, it's probably a way that I was dealing with the insecurities that I faced as a teenager. And I know a lot of kids going through life right now understand what I'm talking about, high school or middle school, even in the US. You're talking to me, man. That was me. Yeah. Well, I think it's almost all of us. I think you have the people that look like they cruise through high school and they have all the friends and they're the... I still think they're putting on a front. I think that those developing years when we're just trying to figure out who we are, 
and those insecurities and where do I fit in? And, and I think I carried that with me for a long time. And when I found triathlon when I was 15, 16, and I became known as the triathlete. And this is in the 80s where there was no, <laughs> nobody knew really what a triathlon was, but that was what I became. And I think because it helped me through those years, the sport really helped me. I think I embraced it even more because it allowed me to be somebody in my own mind that was relevant. I was comfortable in that person. It also probably made it harder when I wanted to retire because you become the triathlete and it's like, well, hang on, how do I retire? But I think my drive in the sport came from because I loved that, that you know, I'm not going to shy away from it. I enjoyed the pats on the back. You know, if I did something well and somebody, you know, you win a race or your podium or you have just a good result or you get selected for your first Australian team or whatever it was, there was all these little pats on the back. I'm like, ooh, I don't mind these little bursts of dopamine that I'm getting from people saying that I'm doing something okay. But I think the the deeper intrinsic reward I was getting was I actually like to feel like I'm accomplishing something, that I am doing something of worth. But yeah, you know, it's a big question to unpack as well. I, li- I like it though because it, it is one that I could probably, I probably still need to keep talking it out myself because I still haven't fully understood <laughs> why I love punishing myself so much. <laughs> yeah, no, and I appreciate you taking us through that. It definitely seems like it's unbelievably, it's a recent theme to you. You know, it's something that you're now unpacking and, and starting to really dig into and understand. Maybe we'll get to learn something. Maybe you'll get to learn something on this episode as we record. You know what I mean? hundred percent you do. Only through conversation, right? I mean, that's how it unpacks. It's, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a follow-up question that could help us here. It's like, how have you maintained that deeply ingrained part of your identity in other outlets? Meaning like, of course, as you moved along the spectrum of passion, I'm sure that facilitated this process. You know, as your passion for this sport started to dwindle, maybe you start to understand that you had to maintain this identity, but in somewhere else, somewhere else where you could maybe discover that passion. And so, how have you been able to maintain that identity aspect to this in other places? Yeah, I think, to be honest, when I first retired from the sport, I thought I was ready. You know, I thought this is going to be, you know, I'll be fine. It actually did take a little bit. You know, I went for some high performance jobs with USA and a triathlon and Australia triathlon, and I thought it was going to be no brainer. They were going to give, of course, I'm going to get them. And I didn't get either of them. I'm like, oh, crap. You know, like you think, I think you get to this point that you, you feel like you deserve it because you've spent all this time. It's like, no, the person that deserves it is the person that makes it happen, right? It's not, you got rewarded. I got rewarded for what I did in that time. And, and so that was a really good wake up call for me. And now as I've sort of transitioned past that and I've become very accepting of who I am now, and I look at myself in three parts. So I'm a dad with two kids and my family. And so my family is really critical to the equation. And that's who I am. My health and longevity and what's important to keeping my body going and, you know, how do I keep the vitality and everything else in my life? And then finally, my work and, you know, working with, like I mentioned earlier, with any question, they're my three parts. And what was fascinating was probably the most exciting part of this last sort of couple of years was getting to know Ed Baker and then having him see value in me beyond Greg the athlete. He actually saw Greg, the guy that can contribute to building hopefully one of the biggest apps the world's ever seen, right? So it's like he saw more in me and that value, that value that somebody has and for a retiring athlete, and again, I was talking with Brad Richards about this, you know, it's interesting how people will value your performances as an athlete, but then as soon as you're done, it's like, okay, there's a new crop, new breed. Like I said, you rent it for a while and then you kind of, 
it's a little bit of cast aside. And that, I'm okay with it. I'm not complaining one bit. I'm just saying that's the reality of being a professional athlete. But then to have somebody value you that you can contribute at another level on another thing, all of a sudden you feel reinvigorated and that same kind of energy that you put to sport is now like, okay, it's to this business. It's to working with building the right team. It's building the product. It's whatever you need. And it's a different kind of way of channeling your efforts into something than sport. And sometimes it's infuriating because with sport, you can just push yourself harder or whatever. <laughs> with, when you're building a business, there's a lot of patience needed. There's all these other kind of things that, you know, as athletes, they're not natural areas we go to. So for me, that's been truly valuable. I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but that's kind of been my process. <laughs> You have. And as you were answering my question, there was a quote that came up for me. I just looked it up just to make sure. It's from Carl Jung. And he goes, the world will ask you who you are. And if you don't know, the world will tell you. And I bring that up because it's funny, but it's like, I bring that up because, you know, you're in a position where so much of your identity was tied to this professional athlete. And then you were kind of at a point where like, uh, you know, the passion is dying or maybe it's dwindling. I need to figure out what the next steps are. And you're in a position where now this part of your identity was like, what happens to it? There has to be some kind of skill, some kind of value that you can carry over to the next big thing. And maybe someone else had to recognize that in you. And I bring this up because I know a lot of people that, for example, like I like to, I love to interview people that are the best at what they do, but they did a complete 180 like career shift. Like I've had people on the podcast that are like NBA Hall of Fame coaches that were originally lawyers. Or I had Romero Brito, the artist, and he was originally going to law school and then he became an artist. You know, it's like I have a lot of these 180 shifts and it's like it comes from a place of a lot of self-awareness, but it also counts to have people around you that are willing to tell you what they see in you so you can go, you know what? Okay. Because you can be lost. You can be very vulnerable. You don't know what's best. You know, you think you have to go back into the Olympics to be a performance coach. And now look at how excited you are about this opportunity. There's another good quote that you know, like I said, I was kind of on the sidelines, you know, for 2016, 2017, 2018, a little bit, just sort of, you know, trying to figure it out. And where's my opportunity? And almost sitting there and Chris Rock put it best, you know, the comedian Chris Rock. And he said, you know, and I'm going to bastardize this a little bit, but I'll try and tell you. And, and he said, look, my car was always breaking down. He said, I'll be on the side of the highway, put my thumb out. No one ever stopped. No one ever stopped. So then there, there was this one time pissing down rain and there was an underpass just in front of me, but the car broke down and I had to try and get the car under the underpass. So I decided I just forget putting my thumb out. I'm just going to get out and push the car. And as soon as I started pushing, everybody started stopping and helping me push the car. And the point of that story is once you put yourself out there in the world, once people can see that you're trying, once people see that you're giving it a go, it's amazing how people will get on board and try and help you in whatever you want to do. But nobody's just going to come and grab you if you're just sitting at home going, well, where's my opportunity? You need to be out there. Like you with this podcast, there's a vulnerability. You're putting yourself out there. I know how hard it is to get guests on. You write them, go, hey, you want to come on? It's not easy, right? I mean, it's not easy. And and people think it's easy. There's a lot to this. We were talking pre-show about, you know, post-editing and the da-la-la. There's a lot in it. But when I saw you on Instagram and I'm like, and I, I think you mentioned something, I was like, I got to help this guy out. Like I get it, right? Because I want to help you push your car. And for me, that's how... Suddenly, life started getting going again. I almost hit this like, where am I going? It's like, oh, here I go again. So that's the, if anybody takes anything away from this episode, just keep moving and let people know you're moving and get them on board, you know, because people want to help each other. And especially when they see something, a good cause or you're trying to achieve something, 
people will get on board and they will help. It's been fascinating for me to watch. So I think one of the first few things that comes to mind for me is it's like a lot of people online, they start to maybe make content or they start their own brand. And then they ask people to like, hey, like follow me, follow me or repost. They ask you to help them. And it's like, it's like, no, 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 no. Those people end up getting way low engagement. You know, they don't really make anything of themselves. But until they start to just put in the hard work and you start to see how your help can actually influence them, you're much more driven to help those people. Of course, there's exceptions. Like, you know, someone asks for help and if it's if you really, you really feel like you're in a position to help, you go and help. But I think that it's when you show that you're making the effort and that you kind of depict how another person's effort can assist, it's like it makes a world of a difference. We all want to help each other that are trying to help themselves. It's human nature. And I think that's the beauty of the world we live in now. We can actually see people that are trying to help each other. So I think it's, I don't know if it's at a DNA level or whatever it is, but I know that that feeling and I've had it now experienced on my end, you know, and it's come back a, a thousandfold. So <laughs> I'm truly appreciative. Well, I, I appreciate you recognizing it, recognizing it in me and helping me out. It's an honor to be here with you. And, you know, let's jump into this subject of, of visualization because I thought that was just fascinating. I had a chance to learn that, you know, when I was doing my degree in exercise physiology, we had a whole psychology class on just visualization. And it's like you had mentioned how back then this was very, very new, a very, very new concept. I'm wondering, how do you visualize? And I can eventually get into maybe to, to help paint the picture, make this practical for the audience. I can get into some of the incredible techniques that I've learned through a book that you may be familiar with. It's called Psycho-Cybernetics. It's a very old book. I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. But yeah, yeah. Basically, it's all about like meditating and visualizing the things that you want to accomplish to the point where your subconscious steers you in the direction necessary to actually accomplish these tasks. And of course, that's what happened. That was the outcome of your training with visualization. So I'm wondering, you know, throughout the years, how did you start visualizing and how do you visualize today to accomplish all these incredible things that you want to accomplish? Yeah, well, I think in sport, it's a fairly easy concept, you know, and I've got to remember that when I talk visualizing for people that maybe aren't athletes and they're just trying to visualize being the hardest job in the world, being a great mom or a great dad, like it's like this... You know, and being an athlete for me, there was the two ways, as I mentioned, there was the physical and there was the static. So when I talk about the physical type training, it would usually start with the drive down or wherever I was going to do, say I was going to do a run and that run might be 10 by three minute efforts or, or 1K efforts or whatever. On the drive down, I would decide what race I'm visualizing, the course, the weather, you know, temperature, time of day. Then I would picture the athletes and I'd list out usually 10 to 20 athletes in my head, but maybe pick three to five that were going to be the big game players. Sorry, I hate to interrupt, but did you ever share this with them? Did you ever tell them, hey, I visualized racing with you? Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. I have a story on that, actually. It's quite hilarious. Then I would go down and, and do my warm-up. And in the warm-up for me, because it was triathlon, it was, in the warm-up, I'd be talking about the swim. There'd be a commentator. So the commentator's in my head. And that commentator would be calling the swim and bike in my warm-up. And this is already getting the blood flowing, you know, it's like the heart rate starting to rise just through visualizing. And then once I get to the workout and I would design my workouts so that they would be great for visualizing. So something like 10 by three minutes is actually a great visual workout because I'd have one and a half minute recovery. And during that one and a half minutes, I'd have the commentator come back. Generally during the three minute effort, I'd be punishing so hard. The commentator wasn't that strong, but I'd have an idea of what was going on. And so I would say, say I'm getting off the bike, you know, I hit my watch and away I go and it'd be like, okay, Greg Bennett's, you know, 
one minute down from Craig Walton, who's had an epic, you know, swim bike. But Greg's over with Simon Whitfield and Bevan Doherty, and it's a big group getting off the bike together. And they're just going incredibly fast, you know, whatever. That'd be the one. And then I'd finish that first one and be like, okay, they're 1K in. You know, they've taken 15 seconds out of Craig Walton. Simon Whitfield's fallen off the back, but Hamish Carter and Greg Bennett are now starting. And I would plan the next kilometer. And then I would kind of go through 1K, 1K, 1K. And then, you know, I'd always make sure I won was my race. (laughs) A critical piece of the puzzle. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, every now and then I would visualize actually (laughs) – it was quite because I was always fatigued, you know. You've got these mass training blocks that you'd be in and you'd turn up and my legs would be shot and just feeling awful. So then I would change the visualization to be like, this has been the hardest bike in the world. These guys are all fried. And I'd slow down everybody around me, right, just to make sure I could still win. It was like – and I'd still get through my workout. So that was kind of one way of doing it, that it got me into a heightened arousal state for that physical training and then the other would be more just lying on the massage table. And, you know, I, for years, I had my good mate, Marcus Mejias, would come over most afternoons for a half hour, hour massage for years, for years and years, at least five times a week, I was getting kind of rub downs and, and he was just really awesome. But I would often just lie on that table, you know, facing the hole. And, and if I had a race coming up in a few weeks time or whatever, it was getting closer, I would run through it. And for me, that was all the way through from swim, bike, run to the point that I could make myself sweat profusely on the table. And Marcus would know that like you're getting deep into your visualizing state. I'd be like, yeah, and he'd know not to interrupt. And generally I'd go through a whole race in say 20 minutes or so, but I could see and feel everything in my body moving without it becoming muscle tense, but just more, I just really believe that every, I'm like, if I can think about it with this much emotion, I'm affecting my hormones, which obviously is affecting my physiology. So it it has to be working. Like I, people would always laugh: is there a way to train for a race without actually having to train? Well, visualizing—I'm not saying you can replace it, but it's a powerful, powerful tool. And even like you said, on the subconscious level, that it carries over into then everything you do beyond the massage table. You get off, and the way you're thinking, the way you're eating, hydrating. Everything is, becomes about that performance in a few weeks' time. And then always the visualizing the night before a race. So I would go through and go, okay, I'm waking up. At, if it was New York Triathlon, which started at 5.45 a.m. on a Sunday morning, I'd be like, okay, I'm getting up at 2.45 a.m. and this is what it's going to look. And I would step through every tiny little thing that I could think of. And it wasn't always perfect, but I would go through that visual and all the way through to the warm-up, all the way through to the gun going off, the, doing the whole race, all the way to the end. I'd do that one right through and we're like, okay, time to go to sleep. Not allowed to think about it anymore. And generally, I'd sleep pretty well if I did a really good job. So, that were the two big ways I did it with sport, sort of the static, lying in a place, and the one when you're out there actually feeding into it on a constant basis. I mean, this is just, you are so gifted in being able to paint that picture and train your physiology and you literally are engaging in training. I mean, from the book that I mentioned, the book that I mentioned is an old book. They mentioned studies from back in the 1920s where people are literally thinking about the training and about shooting the perfect free throw in basketball and how those people ended up making just as many shots than is the people that actually went in and trained physically. And it's like, that was one example. Those were older studies, but then all the way up to my classes in, in psychology and physiology, like you get to see the influence that visualization has on like neural circuitry and muscle memory. That'd be so cool to study that. I'm jealous. That's very cool. Yeah, no, it's super cool. But it's like, 
you know, one thing is learning about it. The next thing is like hearing about this, <laughs> the way that you're describing it, you know, you're sweating. Other people can tell that you're in this phase. But we can all do that. It's like I've taken up tennis the last couple of years, right? It's something Laura and I can do. We can sneak out while we've got little kids so we can go play tennis together. And, and I'm loving, we're quite competitive. So we basically will warm up for about 20 hits and then we're like, okay, let's play a game. Let's go. Because that's what makes tennis fun for us. It's like we dive for every ball and we and there's some days where Laura's just like punishing me, right? I'm two games down and it's just like, I'm like, oh, I get to practice visualizing again. I get to practice word affirmations and, and turning that negative thought back into, I belong. I can do this. You know, I'm athletic. I'm powerful. Bend the knees. You know, I can see myself in the next shot really hitting winners, forehand winners or slicing a back, whatever it is. And suddenly you just start with, and I can turn it around and suddenly we're two games equal or whatever. You know, it's like, I get it. I get what Nadal and Federer and, and tennis is a brutal sport like because the game starts after every point. It's stop, start, stop, start. And you have these moments where you get to collect your brain again and go, even if you're down two sets to love and it's a five-set tournament, you can turn it around and you've seen it time and time again with Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. Have you ever seen guys like this that can just keep turning it around? Yeah. That is some of the toughest mental training you could ever imagine. Don't get me wrong, they're physically gifted, but the way they can come from behind and turn you know, that negative to a positive stance is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, you're getting those sort of like downloads between sets and the way that you were doing it, you were doing it while you were getting a, a massage. I mean, I don't know how long the massage was, but I imagine, you know, one hour, two hours, three hours. And it's like, you're spending that time learning. A lot of people, I think, in this day and age are so preoccupied with like the notifications on their phones and their email and their social media or texting. And it's like, they don't give themselves the opportunity to- We're always on, mate. We're always on. Imagine if we took the time to just reflect in those, just for a moment, for the next step in the day, the next step at work, the next step in our project, the next step in our brand. It's critical. I was talking to Dr. Tommy Wood, who you should have on your show. He's, he's come on mine a number of times and he's a good friend and he's just absolutely brilliant. And we were talking about how life these days in its- Simplest form is really easy, right? We're comfortable. We all have what we need. But unlike 150 years ago, we never turn off. We are always on. And that's our kryptonite right now is that we're looking at screens. We have things dinging us, binging us, dinging us. We're, our brains are always on to the point that we're never grounded. We're never stopping. Whereas 150 years ago, you got your food, you got your harvest. Okay, that was a lot of work. It was very stressful. But now let's decompress. Let's decompress fully. And they would fully decompress for a while. I just don't see us grounding ourselves and decompressing as much as we have. And the way I'm sort of doing it now with my life is, you know, I'm often on these screens from five in the morning to five in the afternoon. I'll usually do an hour break during the day there and usually try and have lunch with the kids. But come five o'clock, I have dinner with the family for 15 minutes. We go straight up to the beach and we walk and play on the beach every single night without fail for a good hour. And it's the most grounding experience. No phones, no. And I've told everybody at work, it's not a time you do not get me and you do not, in, I'm not getting back to you during that time. And it's the most wonderful experience because it's that, okay, ground yourself, release, let go. Because that's why we're getting, you know, we see the kids now and it's like so hard for them to just let go. And uh, man, it's an area that we need to really help each other with because these phones and screens are addictive and very helpful, very useful. Use them. But don't let them control you. You've got to control them and you've got to be able to take control of your own life by finding those times you can be down and decompress and not have your brain on as much as it is. 
Yeah, the reason why I think I love being entrepreneurial and doing my own thing and being my own boss is because I've realized just how much of my peak performance happens when I'm able to truly invest in my creative process, meaning taking time off. Whereas otherwise, if I were doing anything else for anyone else and had to work on someone else's time, I would completely like compromise my abilities. You know, it's like I get to organize myself now. And I'm sure you appreciate this because, you know, you do the same thing. So, you know, you, you give yourself that time to reflect, to visualize, to prepare. And so when you do pull that trigger, yeah, you get insane downloads. Like I've had my best ideas. I'll tell you, there's four places where I have my best ideas. One is in the shower. Two is while I'm driving. Three is when I'm about to go to bed and I'm just laying in my bed. And then four is when I wake up in the morning and I meditate. And those are four things that are critical to my day every single day. Like go for a walk on the beach if you can. Or the walk. Yeah, yeah. 10 minutes with no headphones, no kids, no wife, nothing, just on your own. And it's amazing the stuff that comes in. It's amazing. That's number five is whenever I'm doing an activity, like I had to give up cycling, unfortunately, because it just got way too dangerous in Miami. You know, Miami, it was crazy. Indoor only. When I was on the bike, especially if I was solo on the bike, I would get some amazing, amazing downloads. And now when I go for a walk on the beach, it's similar. But I think that for the day-to-day, what really helps me the most is meditating outside with some sunlight and closing my eyes. And I kind of have a visual of what I'm going to do that day. And I take myself through what I'm going to do. So for example, today's meditation, I visualized having you on the podcast. I visualized the meeting that I had, a bunch of different things. And I clearly visualized what is it going to be like? How am I going to be? How am I feeling today? And how am I going to use it to my advantage? You know, if I'm going to take any supplements, am I going to do exercise before or after this? And it's like, I organize my day according to what works best and the kind of downloads that I receive. And it's been just fundamental for my personal development, personal growth and opportunities that I've had. And I'm sure you can appreciate that. And I, what I want to kind of point out to the people tuning in, it's like, you don't have to be a triathlete or a, a world series. You can get your downloads. Just give yourself the opportunity. Yes, exactly. And I, I love your five things that you pointed out there because I think they're all so valuable that it's like, don't blast music on while you're in the shower. Use these times to not have anything coming in. And what I've been doing a lot in my morning workouts, which these days is only about 45 minutes in the morning, is you know, for the first half, I kind of would do an audio book, you know, usually one to do with um, product development or something, you know, I'm trying to learn drinking through a fire hose in this new tech space. So I, I use it as a time to learn. But then I also take out the earbuds, leave my phone and the earbuds at home. And then I'll go for my little jog walk for 15, 20 minutes just to go, okay, it's not about work now. This is my time to decompress again. And I think these little moments in time, not only make me better at work, not only are good for my health, I'm a better dad and I'm a better husband because you turn up, you know, you're now ready again. You need these like, they're like little micro reboots, you know, like, and the creativeness comes in. They're so valuable. I love it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm someone, I'm always looking to learn more. So I'm listening to podcasts, I'm consuming content, you know, and all the time, like, it's, it's like any chance I get, I want to learn, 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 learn. But I've realized that to do the things that only I can do, the things that I can do best, I have to give myself the opportunity to download what's unique to me. If I'm always consuming someone else's content, those aren't original ideas anymore. Maybe it's supplying me with certain ideas, but then to integrate it and to create my own, I have to give myself the opportunity to self-reflect. And that's where I visualize. Yeah, man, I'm sure we can have several episodes on just the topic of visualization. You know, I wanted to, I was curious, you've spoken a lot about your wife. I'm wondering, how did you guys discover each other? And how did you know that 
dating a triathlete was the best decision. I know a lot of people that I've met personally who are so into their field, they go, I don't want to learn anymore about this. I want to date someone that's a complete polar opposite. And the reason I bring this up is because I think it has a lot to do with your personal health and wellness, as you've described. And for the young people out there that are looking for their significant other, you know, what kind of tips can you give us in that realm? Yeah. Well, I think it's funny, you know, Laura and I have been together for 22 years now. And, you know, we have a two and a four year old kid, you know, I'm the old dad in the playground, but it's like, we wouldn't have had it any other way. We got to have our kind of life and careers together before kids. And now we have kids together. And, you know, I had dated several women before Laura and it, it, it you know, it's all about sort of figuring out what you do and don't like in people, right? It, it, that's the whole point of dating is kind of going, you know, what kind of person am I after? For me, when I met Laura, it was just easy. It was just easy the very first time. Obviously, she's a beautiful woman and had all that attractive side of it, which without sounding too shallow, I mean, or cheap or whatever you want to call me. <laughs> there is something about the attractiveness of somebody. And I was like, oh, you know, she's pretty hot. <laughs> and I think we never really dated because she came, I was living and training in Canada, Victoria, Canada at the time. And, and she'd come up to do a bit of a training camp for a couple of weeks. And I think she was injured on the first day. So we just ended up hanging out. And it was so easy in the sense that I remember just going out for coffee and she just made me laugh, right? At the end of the day, it was very simple, very easy. She then went back to Florida and we decided to meet in Chicago. And then I said, I'm going to Australia to train. And she said, oh, maybe I'll come down there as well. And because we were traveling athletes, we ended up moving in together right away. We'd never gone on a date. We just kind of hung out in this training camp at Victoria. But it was one of those where there was never a question of will we make it? Are we the right fit? It was kind of like we just were. And this is where I don't like to give any advice on this, if I must be honest, because if you want to talk about one of the greatest gifts I was just given, and I feel privileged to have been just given it, whether you call it fate or whatever it was, was to get this magnificent wife that I have, right? And it always surprises me when I wake up each morning and she's still here because I'm like, wow, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> you know, I, I've been truly blessed. And in terms of making a relationship work as both athletes, you know, that just takes a lot of communication. We communicate, communicate, communicate as much as we can. It's hard when you're both really tired. And it's not to say it's all roses. Our relationship hasn't been all roses. Of course, no relationship is. And, and every relationship takes a lot of work. But once you find the one that you say, okay, this is it. It's like, well, this is what I'm going to work. This is my goal for the rest of my life is to work on this. It's not work on it for a few years. It's, <laughs> you know. I think the takeaway here is you were just able to be yourselves because there wasn't an expectation to sort of be the couple or to have to make adjustments. It's like, you guys are both athletes. You guys are both doing what you do as individuals and that kind of mutual respect and things just making sense and of course a level of attractiveness was what brought it together right yeah i think you know, laura's described it really well she's like look we were good athletes before we got together and we became great athletes after right because i think we had that i brought this overwhelming passion and enthusiasm and love for what we do. And it's not to say Laura didn't love what she did, but I was probably brought this next level energy. And she brought this level-headed, rational, control the ego, control the expectation, analytical way of looking. And we balanced each other up, you know. And I think having each other for that, having somebody that could be at home that understands the lifestyle you want to live because it's a lifestyle. Our job was as much a sport or an occupation as it was a lifestyle. And so, when you've got somebody on board that fully understands the importance of sleep and hydration and nutrition and 
bodywork and biomechanics and mental health and general health and all of these aspects, they understand it because they're wanting it for themselves as well. So you're growing together of building this lifestyle of going, how do we optimize the lives that we have? And we worked very, very hard on that and our conversations are, have been a lot about that. I mean, even now, you know, I don't know how much money we've just spent on tests for our full health workup. You know, it's like, here we go. It's like probably five grand each on just health. And that sounds like so much money to go get testing on health. And I'm like, well, most people spend that on a car every year. And I was like, you know, so for us, it's a priority. We don't debate these things. It's like, what do we need to just keep trying to do the best we can to optimize these beautiful things we have, which are called life. <laughs> and it's like, how do we have this life just be the best it can be and squeeze as much out of it as possible? Yeah. So I want to highlight how you just mentioned, like you spend this much money on these kinds of tests. And at the end of the day, what you're pursuing is health optimization. But think about how individual health optimization is. So it just kind of goes back to you guys are so proudly individual. Yes, you guys are in a similar realm, but in your realm to be optimized, it's such an individual approach. And so from the get-go, you guys understand that you guys have to treat yourself first as individuals, be true to yourselves. But now when you discover how that can work synergistically and that you appreciate each other, you bring something new to the table, and all of a sudden you have this beautiful relationship that respects the individual components. And that to me is everything because I think a lot of people are so worried about what do I have to change about myself to be for that person? What does that person, what do I need to change about that person so they can be better for me? And I think from the get-go, they set these false expectations. They kind of pretend as if this person is the ideal person. And I see a lot of that in Miami because there's a lot of attractive people here and we try to like cater to those people. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's a bonus. But if you can respect each other as individuals, come together and make something even better, that to me is like top. And I think you just nailed it. If you're with somebody and they're not making you a better person, that person's not right for you. If they're making you feel less, if they're making you feel no better and you're not growing or feel like you're going anywhere, then get out. Your partner is there to help you get more out of yourself, to help you recognize things in you that you haven't seen before. We often play uh, probably once a, well, probably once every two years in fairness, a game where we just sit down and we point out each other's strengths. You know, what are your great attributes? People don't do that. People are very good at pointing out each other's weaknesses, you know, things you could work on and look fine. We need to work on a few things, but I'm, I'm all about optimizing our strengths. And so to sit down, and I think that was even one of the reasons I started a podcast in the beginning. You know, Laura said, you know, you're quite, you're quite okay at conversation, you know, and you don't mind a talk and all of these things that she empowered me by telling me what my strengths were. Well, that's what a partner should be, be able to see in you and tell you. And help you find, you know, optimize those strengths within you. And I think if you can find somebody like that, then I think you're going to have a great journey and a great partnership. My girlfriend's going to love this. My partner's going to love this because that's exactly what you're describing is what we found. And it's a matter of time now to stand the test of time, so to speak. But we are all about the individual and how important it is for us to grow as individuals. But coming together, we make something beautiful. And I think I'm going to play that game with her next time I see her, you know, just outlining our strengths. It's so great. It's so great. Nobody takes the time to just stop and pause and just say, I'm just going to tell you a few things that I think you do really well. Making the transition from this unique approach to health optimization, you know, you guys are spending a lot of time, energy, and money to continue to be optimized throughout your lives. But I'm wondering if you were to look back to the early triathlon and athletic days, you know, what are some themes that you go man, I don't know why we were doing that back then. That's totally not what we would do today. You know, because nowadays, like you go on social media, 
you go on YouTube, you see all these trends in diet and fitness and you're just like, man, that sounds really, really cool. Next year, it's like, how is anybody doing that? You know, so I know that you mentioned we were having a conversation before the podcast about some crazy workouts in the 90s and, you know, brutal hard work and other themes that perhaps today, you know, you kind of like just look back and laugh at. What were some things that stand out? Yeah, well, it's a good question. It's, you know, where we are today, first and foremost, is when we look at high performance sport, we look at the wellness of an athlete, right? Sleep, nutrition, hydration, their mental health, their general health, biomechanics, all of that is huge priority. And then we do the physical training as a part of that. During the 80s and 90s, it was all about physical training. And if you talked about the other stuff, you were weak. I mean, it was that simple. It was either strong or weak, right? I mean, it was, and I'm including, we never drank water in training. I'm talking two hour, two and a half hour hard runs. As you pick up your water, we were dehydrated. We were fueling completely wrong. It was all about carbohydrates for the longest time. They'd have carbohydrate parties. And, you know, it was just the biggest thing we had going wrong was we had egos attached to the physical training. Whoever works the hardest will be the greatest, full stop. And so, you know, an example for me is I remember getting ready for the 2000 Olympic Games trials and I was with my coach and it was early on a Saturday morning and the gym upstairs in Christchurch, New Zealand, where we were training, was just above the 50-meter pool. This is before the earthquake and a beautiful complex. But, but it was a kind of a dark and dingy gym and there were just two treadmills set up side by side in the gym and it was just me and my coach. And, and I got up there and he, he said, you know, Greg, I want you to do 35 seconds on, 25 seconds off, which, you know, you straddle the treadmill. With the 35 seconds on, we'll set the treadmills to 22.5 kilometers an hour, so about just over 14 miles an hour, and at one degrees, you know. So basically sprinting for 35 seconds and jumping off for 25 seconds. And he said, I want you to do that until you drop. And I was like, okay. And the reason there were two treadmills there is because, you know, this was summer in New Zealand. It was getting pretty hot. And there was no air conditioning or anything, and I was going to sweat too much on one, and I'd have to swap backwards and forwards and let the other one dry off. So I was kind of like, okay, I guess I'll do this workout. Never done one where I'd just do it till I can't do anymore and so away i went and the first sort of probably 50 to 70 were really tough i was just struggling to find a rhythm but then i just hit this state of flow and you hear this with athletes this ability and i think chiksamahai was the guy that referenced it as a state of flow but that ability where you just go into this zone and you just don't even know it's just so robotic anyway i just kept going and for two and a half hours I just kept doing 35 seconds on, 25 seconds off. And finally, Brett, my coach, who was in the corner, you know, put down his newspapers and said, okay, Greg, that's enough. I'll see you in a couple of hours for swim training. So it was basically just shy of a marathon of doing sprints on and off. It was about 38 kilometers worth of sprinting on and off. Epic workout, absolutely fun to talk about now. Was it the right thing to do in terms of performing, I don't really think so. But I wore like this badge of honor. And I've got to add that throughout the many years there in the mid to late 90s, you know, I often, you know, was urinating blood and, you know, they call it exercise induced hematuria. Is that how they do it? You're a physiologist. You, <laughs> but yeah, rhabdo. Yeah, rhabdo or whatever. And look, but I wore that as a badge of honor. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm probably doing something poor to my health. It was like, well, this is how hard I worked. Exactly. If word gets out that, oh, I'm willing to work that hard, then surely that's everybody's going to cave under my, you know, some kind of stand. It's just like I look back, I'm like, you idiot. You know, and this is where the athletes of today are just being coached 
so much smarter. You know, I've had some other great athletes on my show, Michael Klim, who was probably one of Australia's greatest swimmers and multiple gold medals at the Olympic Games and the greatest swimmer of the 98 World Championships, you know, 100, 200 meter freestyler, absolutely phenomenal. And he was just, you know, the same as me, kind of looking back at the work he did in the 90s under his uh, coach, Gennady Turetsky, who was also Popov's coach. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked here. But the kind of work that they did, 100 kilometer weeks, consistent 100 kilometer weeks in the pool. 100 kilometers in the pool, 60 miles a, a week in the pool to swim a race that takes 49 seconds. And then, you know, the health issues that he's had to deal with and everything post that is really quite extraordinary because we really just destroyed ourselves. So right now I'm sitting here as a 50-year-old, retired, you know, six, seven years, just going, okay, what do I need to do to just firstly look after the certain things that I've got going on because I did damage myself all of those years and nothing too major, but okay, how do I support my system better now than I did for all those years, especially in the 90s? But when Laura and I got together, we were a lot better, better, but still probably not perfect in our overall health. Yeah. So one of the biggest themes that I took away from my degree is that the nature of the stimulus dictates the nature of the adaptation. Like the specific way you train is a specific way you're going to perform. And this goes down to the substrate utilization level and every other level you can imagine. And so it's like, I understand that there's an ego kind of thing, an ego component, and there's like a, a mental grit and resilience component to just doing something that's way beyond, way, way, way beyond. But from an athletic perspective, if you're doing a specific athletic effort, why would you train any other way other than exactly the way you need to train for that sport and build up your ego through other means? Like, look at how specifically I'm doing this and look at how well I'm sleeping and eating and look at, you know, XYZ. But it's like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Well, it's interesting, you know, and, and look, don't get me wrong. I think I, in all those years of that really brutal hard work that I did in the late 90s, I learned a lot about myself as an athlete and I grew tremendously. It's like I talk about that peering over the edge and going beyond. The work we were doing, when I talk about that kind of work on the treadmill, obviously it wasn't, it was very specific to the way I wanted to race at 22K an hour. It's the speed of my legs that I wanted to be running, you know, a 28, 29-minute 10K. And so it was specific in that sense and I'd been doing it for a long, long time. I think we often did very dramatic workouts so the world would hear about them. But, you know, when Laura and I started coaching ourselves in 2004 onwards, there's a lot of workouts in there that I don't share that were my clothing, my sweat stank because of my muscle breakdown, you know, that really acidic. Exertional rhabdomyolysis. That's the word. That's exactly it. Thank you. I'm going to leave the experts talk about that. I mean, I had that just constantly just breaking down myself. And we can go into body image issues. You know, we'd always talk about women, from us men in endurance sports. The, I remember taking a photo in January in Noosa, Australia. I was in my swimsuit. Someone said, oh, let's grab a photo of you and Laura or whatever. I'm like, oh, please don't take a photo. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm overweight. I'm fat. And, oh, this is going to be, this is awful. And I saw the photo not so long ago, the exact photo that was taken probably 15 years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, I thought I was fat. And it's like, there's nothing on me. Like, it's like, it's skeletal on my, you know, I can see all my ribs and it's just like, I'm like, wow. You know, I actually really struggled with that as well. So, you know, in terms of, I'm kind of laying it all out there for you. It's like <laughs> the good, the bad and the ugly. And it, it always sounds impressive with an intro of, you know, professional athlete, Olympics and all of this stuff. But there's a lot of, it's not all roses back there and the issues that you hear. 
they're very real. But don't get me wrong, I wouldn't change a thing either. I kind of go, the fact is, if you want to perform at the highest, highest level in endurance sport, you can't be heavy. I don't care who you are. If you're carrying weight in the wrong areas, it's going to affect your performance. And this is where coaches have to tread a really fine line when they work with athletes these days because how do you present that? No, and particularly with women. You know, I don't want to call women out, but it's, it's the truth. You've got to be careful. But there's a way to do it. And look, weight should be trained off. And if an athlete you're coaching, a, a woman in particular, is not able to get it off, then you need to look at her sleep. You need to look at her hormones and her diet. There's more going on. Because if you're training 20 to 30 hours a week, it's not about somebody overeating. You almost can't eat enough at that point. Your caloric burn is through the roof. So if they're retaining weight for some reason, there's other things that a good coach should be able to help with. And say, let's look at your, your hormones. Let's look at your sleep. Let's, without pointing out, yeah, it's a fragile area. It's a very, you got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really incredible female physiologists and doctors and experts. Uh, for example, I had a, a woman. Her name is Kayla Osterhoff, PhD in uh, neuropsychophysiology. And we talk about like the female biorhythm and how you need to pay attention to that to determine when women should be training more hardcore, when they should be uh, emphasizing sleep a little more, or maybe even like carb cycling, when it makes sense according to where you're all in your cycle. I know Stacey Sims is another incredible figure in that space. Her book, Roar, and a lot of her content since Roar, because that was published in 2016, a lot of we've come a long way since then. But there's a lot of incredible women out there that kind of teach these younger athletes what they need to do to mind their physiology because between men and women, we're so, 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 so different. And a lot of women just train themselves as if they were men and it can affect, you know, all kinds of things. You're going to be coached very differently. I agree. You know, I have a few remaining questions. I know we've been at this for some time. I, I definitely want to do a part two in person now knowing that you're local to me. I'm wondering, once you stopped competing can you describe the difference can you paint the picture as far as how your nutrition changed because when you're training for hours and hours and hours can you kind of describe how much carbohydrate you were consuming then and how much you consume now it's funny though i mean you actually become quite efficient at movement and your energy as much as we would train you know 20 to 30 hours a week on average you become quite efficient at that movement that you calorie burn wasn't off the chart and because we were training all the way throughout the day, we didn't have big breakfasts and we didn't have big lunches. We kind of would snack because, you know, you don't want it coming back up. And so our dinners, we would always eat early, often by 4.35, where, you know, big salad bowl type things each of just whatever we were eating at that time and just massive portions at dinner several hours before we would go to bed. And Laura's metabolism was, was higher than mine. She was just like churning it over. But mine was... My metabolism was actually not super high. I could do a fair bit of work without burning through a lot of calories, so I was pretty fortunate there. But when we retired, you know, it was kind of – it was nice to not feel hungry as much and have to worry about the food. But my wife, as soon as she's had, you know, two babies and is breastfeeding, has taken nutrition to another level. It's like now she's growing two little people through breast milk or well now they're, they're off that but she's really i mean if you want to talk about nutrition and understanding the gut biomes and everything else i really go off her lead now these days you know my focus is obviously on my work and everything else so i'll come out at dinner and 4 45 when dinner's served or whatever and i've got a huge bowl of something well, not huge these days it's just a normal portion size but you know in terms of nutrition as a whole you know we eat very whole. We try and mix everything up. Everything's about the gut biome, what feeds the gut. That's what we really focus on. Obviously, 
gluten, mostly free, really no sugar in the house. We really don't touch sugar anymore. I don't have a craving for it like I used to. You know, as an athlete, I crave. You wanted that simple sugars. You needed that. Now it's, I don't crave it. I have a little bit of dark chocolate each day, but it's kind of, you know, I've never been a big coffee drinker, so I have one coffee a day. I'm sipping a the Lion's Mane Mushroom Tea, you know, the- Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic. They sponsored my show for a while and I sip on that every now and then. And But otherwise, it's, it's honestly, it's fairly simple, you know, but it's nice to be at a point. My point of saying that is, is I don't crave things like I used to. And such, that was always like, oh, always felt like rubbish. You know, you wanted to eat these things, but you also had a bonfire when you were an athlete. You had a bonfire in your gut that was just like, ah, you know, could almost eat anything. And now- I'm probably more, I can notice how things affect me a lot more. And so you're kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to eat that cookie because I don't want the, I want to sleep well tonight. Or I, you know, things actually, I notice those things. Uh, whereas an athlete, it's just like, you can do what you want almost. <laughs> you notice how it influences aspects beyond like the physical performance, how it influences like your mood and your mindset. Whereas as an athlete, it's like, as long as I have the calories that are going to keep me going, like that's what matters. That's exactly right. When I started, I really only cycled for about, just over a year, like I got like sucked into it. Like I went head first into road cycling. Never thought like typically right there there'd be a bike hanging behind me. I don't know if you can see. I'm actually selling the bike today. Like today's we're getting paid for the bike coincidentally. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. I am getting a gravel bike. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna keep doing it. I just I'm not on the road. But anyway, I jumped head first into it, and I started to I mean applying the knowledge that I've gained from you know exercise physiology and nutrition. It's like I leveled up very quickly in the world of cycling very, very quickly. I started going with the hardest groups, fastest groups. So we're getting sucked in. And that's when I was like, you know, previous to that, I would never take like sports drinks or, you know, too much coffee. Or, and I started taking the tailwind stuff and just like loading my water bottles with sugar and like sugar, 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 gel packs, gel packs, gel packs. And I started to perform on like I've ever seen before. But then when I wasn't cycling, I had this craving for sugar that was like, and I would just kind of go up and go down like you know, brain fog and then crash and oh my goodness, like I feel like I wrecked my gut microbiome. No, we would get to the point, we'd, we'd play it around with it, be like, you know, we would go, you want to go on a sugar high together? We'd treat it like a drug. We would say, you want to go on a sugar high? Be like, yeah, let's eat these together, laughing our heads off for half an hour and then be like, yeah, but we're going to crash you, right? And we're like, yep, <laughs> crash over here. But recognizing what it's doing to you is a really good place to work with any addiction, right? If you can understand what mood or how it's, it's like if you say greg let's eat dinner at 7 30 at night i know i'm not sleeping well that night i know it or even a drink you say you want to go i like a couple of beers every now and then not gonna lie but i'm a day drinker because the nights hurt me more than anything i can have a couple of beers with you at two in the afternoon and still get a reasonable night's sleep you say let's have a beer at 7 30 at night i'm like oh, i'm gonna be wrecked for the whole night yeah, for me, it was like red wine. I had red, I enjoy it, but I, for me, I was like, oh, you know, the bonuses, it's like, like investing in longevity. You have the resveratrol, the polyphenols. And then I started to see how it influenced my biometrics because I tracked the biostrap. I tracked my biometrics overnight and it was like wrecking my HRV and my deep sleep percentage. And I was like, man, you know, in the name of longevity, I think sleep is probably a little more important. <laughs> There's always one, whether it be the resveratrol or whatever it is. And I was like, yeah, well, I don't know. You can still, you can take that in tablet form and everything. <laughs> yeah. You can get resveratrol from grapes. You know what I mean? It's like, and then it was the early dinners. Like one of the biggest changes that I made over the past few years to sleep better, feel better, perform better. It's like just having earlier dinner. Like if more people start eating dinner early, this world would be a better place. Yeah, I agree. We love the five o'clock dinner. And then, uh, you know, like I said, go down to the beach for an hour or whatever. And 
honestly, if you're really hungry later, maybe I'd have a piece of toast or something. But generally, the early dinner, we've been doing it forever, but everybody knows you don't call the Bennetts after eight because it's like the house the house is gone. We're all in bed and asleep. Everyone's like, I love the question actually, you know, what's your morning routine? And for me, the morning routine is kind of erroneous unless you get the night routine right. And so, you know, we're all in bed asleep by 8.45. Like, and it's like the morning looks up and so. Yeah, what I say is like, no matter how good your morning routine is, it's never going to outweigh a poor night of sleep. People glorify. It's crazy because all these like CEOs and, you know, whatever, they go, oh, yeah, team no sleep. And then they have their crazy morning routines. And it's just like, just do the opposite. <laughs> Get the night right. Get the evening right. And I guarantee you, like for me, I, comf- I never wake up with an alarm. I get up between four and five, whatever it is. I get a beautiful couple of hours before the kids get up and I can get a bunch of work done on the computer. I'm not going to lie. I go have my coffee on the computer. That's the first thing I do. I don't run out the door and do an activity. Laura does. She goes and does her activity first and she comes home and I get to go do my activity, breakfast with the family, and then into the day of work from nine o'clock onwards. But, you know, I never want to tell people my morning routine without telling them, I'm sound asleep. I panic if it's after nine and I see, I'm like, ah. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. And before we get off here, I have just one more question. Is there, overall, how do you think your knowledge of your physiology has helped you stay and maintain this optimized, you know, healthy life? Going back to the, the name of this podcast, Know Your Physio, it's clear to me that you have this gifted visceral awareness of your body and your mind. Do you think that everyone should get to know their physiology a little better in the pursuit towards optimal health? Well, yes. I think first and foremost, we should have it in the schools and kids should know everything about their body, right? I mean, it's like that to me, should be, it should be at the educational level. The fact that it's not, okay, let's deal with it. The best thing I would suggest is surround yourself with a good team of people. And that includes whether you're using a physiologist or chiropractor or nutritionalist or build your health team. Build your team. I'm all about teams. You know, a lot of my learning, yeah, it became through self-experimentation, a lot of it, but I also had great team of people around me, whether it be my massage therapist, Marcus Mejias, or my chiropractor down here, Alex Keith, chiropractor in Portland, Oregon, Dr. Ted Forkham in Australia. I have all these people that have been educating me for 30 years. And now, you know, when it comes to, I've got a little niggle, I know how to use, you know, Graston tools or whatever they want to call them these days, how to scrape. I know all about, you know, dry needling and I can dry needle different. I won't dry needle my thoracic or anything, but I know how to do some basic dry needling. I know how to, so I can do basic maintenance very well. I still like to go to a chiropractor every now and then if I feel like my C1 is out and I need an adjustment, I can sense that, that it's not right. I'm getting headaches or whatever. You know, I can sense these things, but I also got to, mentioned that I'm far from perfect either. I'm not some kind of specimen that we should all look to. I've got plenty. I've put on a few pounds since sitting behind this computer working a lot more than I'd like and that's something I'm going to have to, you know. I think that my point is in saying that is we're all a work in progress, right? And you just want to keep learning more about yourself. Be good to yourself. You're not going to be perfect. There is no such thing as perfect. Just try and be a little bit better each day and every now and then you're going to have days where you step a few steps backward because it's life, right? It's not just a constant even curve. It's like the stock market, isn't it? It's like all over the place. And I think, you know, being good to yourself is probably the most important thing. Try and create these habits, you know, these daily habits. They will become easier. That's the whole point of a habit. Just keep turning up, keep trying to do those things over and over again. And it's amazing how, you know, 
50 days in or whatever the time amount is that the habit is starting to form, it's like, oh, it's quite easy to stay on top of this nutrition or this hydration or this sleep or whatever else it is or this activity. So, yeah, I'm blessed to have been able to have a career in, in a lifestyle sport like triathlon and get to learn my health. And now as I look for the next 30 to 40 years that I might have left if I'm fortunate, I just want to try and optimize the years that I have left. And that's why I'm working with a lot of building my new team now of trying to go, how do we keep this body going? Oh, thank you so much, Greg. And I think the last thing I want to highlight here is just how important it is to be your own commentator. <laughs> yes. I've got someone in my head the whole time, mate. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Hey, Greg, where can people find you? Well, on Instagram, The Greg Bennett Show, which is the name of my podcast. I'm a little bit active on there. You can even go check out any question. You can download that on your, your app, either iOS or Android. And, you know, I'm on there as an expert in the Triathlon channel. We have loads of experts in the health channel and we, we're building out cycling and we have all the world's greatest swimmers. Actually, our swimming channel is just off the chart. So if you're into swimming, go listen to Caleb Dressel and Ryan Murphy and some of the greatest swimmers in the world and swim coaches answering questions on any question. First hour's free, so you don't need to do anything. After that, it is a subscription-based model, but most of that revenue goes back to all the experts that are answering questions. So, yeah, go check that out. Twitter I am on also. I think that's just called Greg Bennett Show. I don't think there's a the in front of it. But otherwise, yeah, reach out, anybody. Awesome. Love to hear from you. Greg, thank you so much. Such an honor to host you, and I'm looking forward to the next conversation. I appreciate it, mate. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.